Well, let me just say on behalf of our church family how much we appreciate those of you who have ministered to us in song today. Uh, when many of us are uh, enjoying sitting in traffic yesterday and uh, doing other things to prepare for the season, these folks are taking time to practice and rehearse, and we thank you for uh, using your gifts in that way. Let me just invite all of you to take a moment and silence your cell phones, if you would, please. And uh, we won't have any unnecessary interruptions uh, in the moments ahead. Let me also just update uh, you. Um, I did send out an email prayer request uh, the other day, um, making known uh, a prayer request for our former pastor of our church, Gary Finn, uh, who served very faithfully here and effectively uh, for 10 years prior to my uh, time of ministry here. And... Uh, he was diagnosed recently with pancreatic cancer, and uh, so if you uh, would just lift him up in prayer, we don't know much more details than that, and uh, are not certain about any kind of treatment or anything. So if you would just uh, pray for him, I know he would appreciate that, and uh, commit him to the Lord. Um, I also just wanted to say that... Um, uh, we appreciate your prayers. We close on our uh, house on Friday, and uh, Lord willing, uh, all, there's a lot of variables and a lot of things that need to be figured out, but we appreciate your prayer for that as well. Now let's uh, turn our attention to the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We've been looking at this text and considering it uh, from a rather unusual angle uh, this year in our Advent series. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 2. If you have a pew Bible, We'd encourage you to find your way there on page 1142, uh, Matthew chapter 2, or find it on your tablet, on your phone. Uh, let's follow along as I read the account of the Magi. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, <clears throat> behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, as if it should have been common knowledge to everybody, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet, and this is Micah chapter 5, he quotes, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
And having been warned by God in a dream not to return but to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray once again. Our Father, as we look into this portion of your word once again, as we consider the ultimate priority of worshiping you, we pray that you might use your word to speak to our hearts today. Help us, Lord, not to be defensive. Help us not to be distracted. Help us, Father, to be uh, easily able to discern what the Spirit is seeking to impress upon us through your word today. Help us to find the message, Lord, that which finds a place of rest in our hearts, in our souls, that we would see the Word of God working in us, pointing us to Christ, giving us a greater love for Christ, and revealing our hearts in such a way, Lord, that we realize how much we need you and need the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have spent the last three Sundays of Advent looking at this text of Scripture in which the Magi uh, are responding to their first encounter with Jesus Christ. And we noticed in verse 11 that it was emphasized in my reading, and hopefully you've noticed, uh, obviously the theme these last few weeks is, they worshipped Him. And I've been uh, trying to meditate and extract on the significance of that phrase, because we noticed that rather than worshipping the star, which many people like them did at that time, uh, the star that led them to this house, they did not worship the star, they worshipped Christ. They did not worship the world's wealth. They did not worship Mary, the mother of Jesus, but they bowed down and acknowledged the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Now this morning I want us to consider one area of misdirected worship, which is what we've been looking at in the previous weeks. I want us to continue in that theme. And I want us to think one that is again, bears witness to a hijacking of hearts, is when instead of worshiping Jesus, we worship ourselves. And so once again, we'll point out the fact that these magi did not worship themselves. They did not bow down and acknowledge their own worth and and the wonder of themselves. They worshiped Christ. Now I want us to briefly take some time to have a survey of this theme. I'm going to begin, my first point this morning will be to show the prevalence of self-worship. It goes all the way back to the beginning and comes all the way up to our present time. Just a very quick overview of that. And then I'm going to consider the symptoms or the fruit of self-worship. What does that look like? How does it evidence itself in our lives and in the world today? And then lastly, I'd like to examine what is the cure, the real cure for self-worship. Our first point is the prevalence of self-worship. As you think about it, it clearly is not a modern ailment that's only been around for, let's say, a generation or two. As I thought about this, I didn't include it in your notes because it's, it's after the fact that dawned on me, not only is it present in the first century, which we'll talk about in a moment, But it was prevalent, and it goes back to the beginning of human history. If you look at Genesis 3 and consider what took place at the beginning of human history, there is such irony there because we read in Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, 
the serpent speaks to Eve, who had told him what was the instructions from God, that they were not to partake of the tree of the life, sorry, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is the serpent's response. She said, if we take it, we'll die. And so the serpent says, you will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And watch this. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the thought that this cunning serpent, who ironically was a mere, if you will, a beast of the field, someone who was not created in the image of God, speaking to those who were created in the image of God, ultimately Adam and Eve, and those who were created in the image of God, Adam and Eve, they were there, privileged to be given the responsibility to exercise authority over the created beasts of the world. And sadly enough, they abdicate their God-given role. They were assigned by God, the Creator, as image bearers of Him. They were to govern the earth on God's behalf. And yet we see at the beginning this, this idea of wanting to be God, of wanting to, to become the people who are equal with God, and to, and to be able to say, we want to be God-like more than what we have been assigned and privileged to be already. And so this act of treachery is rooted in this desire that says, I'm not satisfied with my role. I want to be in the position of that which is a privilege that only God has. Well, that was the beginning of the evidence of this self-worship that showed itself. But if you look fast forward through many, many years of human history, let's pick it up in the first century. And let me invite you to turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3, just for a second. In 2 Timothy 3, self-worship was rather common in that culture of the Roman Empire, because Paul says to Timothy, listen, Timothy, this is how things are in these last days in which we live. You should anticipate this. It's not going to be easy doing ministry. Why is that? 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, but realize this, that in the last days, by the way, last days began with the coming of Christ. And since that time to the present, we are in the last days. So... Uh, don't let anyone convince you otherwise. In, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men or people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money. Boastful, arrogant, revilers. Skip on down to verse 4. Treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Did you notice that three descriptions in that list that I referred to there refer to a love other than the love for God? And so one of the fundamental issues of men's hearts, of people's hearts, is this idea of misdirected love. Love for someone or love for something 
other than God was a problem that was evidenced widely in the first century and has continued on to this day. Matter of fact, the term that Paul used there in verse 2, he talks about love of self, is a compound word. He takes the word for phileo, uh, which is, we understand to be, to have a great affection for. And he matches that up with the word autos, which is the word for self, to have a great affection for oneself. He said this is the, the idea that there's an overemphasis of love for self which takes precedence over a love that we should have for God. And you'll notice that the first of all of these, uh, these characteristics regarding what people are like in that first century, people who are without Christ, people whose hearts are just living life in their own natural way, it noticed that the listing first is the character trait of lovers of self. And that, it seems to me, is the taproot from which all these other branches then grow out of what you read there in that text of Scripture. So you get the general character of an unregenerate person. Is they are, There's much arrogance. There's malicious gossiping going on. There is ungratefulness. Unholiness characterizes their life. Boastfulness. Brutality. There's conceit. And indeed, the lack of self-control. All of these attributes grow out of this root system of a heart that is bent on loving self more than God. Well, that's the first century. I think it's easy to say that, you know, that easily applies to our day today. Because when you fast forward and you think about the year 2018, we are in a culture that is awash in self-love. Based on the assumptions of humanism, based on the assumptions of relativism, we are told that there is no such thing as absolute values, as absolute truth or absolutes. There's no such thing. And therefore... We are left with what? Personal opinions, with personal desires, with personal passions that now are, have been elevated to the highest value in our society in general. So what does that look like? Well, an example would be the psychologists years ago, Carl Rogers, Eric Fromm, and others, proclaim that the real fundamental problem it people have is we have a lack of self-love. We have a lack of self-esteem. And so they articulated this, again, probably 50 years ago or so, and they laid the seeds and the groundwork for that kind of thinking. And so what has happened over the years is that what? Now self is the new measure of all things. It is self that is the prime motivator for most people. It is self that is now the supreme arbiter of what's right and what's wrong. Self-fulfillment is the highest priority since what? There's nothing more important than yourself because we all esteem ourselves so highly. And so what has become the mantra, mantra of our age? Be true not to your country, not to the people who live down the street to you, not to those who are the down and out and the needy, 
Be true to yourself is the mantra. Unfortunately, that kind of thinking also has infiltrated within the church. And so over the years, there have been various Christian authors who have defended the idea that you cannot love God and you cannot love other people unless and until we love ourselves. And so they would take a verse, for example, we all should be familiar with. If you're not, you need to make sure you note this uh, in your Bible somewhere. Matthew 22, where Jesus is responding to a question given to him. Hey, what's, what, give us the base. Give, boil it all down. What's the Old Covenant, the Old Testament? Uh, what does it teach in terms of the greatest covenant, the greatest command? And so Jesus summarized it and he says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this latter command, to love your neighbor as yourself, instead of demanding that we love ourselves, again, that has been somehow convoluted in the thinking and interpreting of this text now through modern eyes, we come up to some people and say, oh, you, you, you cannot properly love God and other people unless you love yourself. May I remind you, this text is assuming that all of us automatically love ourselves. He's saying you need to love other people to the degree that you already love yourself and are devoted to your own self-interests, which we naturally do. So this command that is, again, has been turned upside down by modern interpretations among many Christians, it's really urging us to love other people to the degree and to the level of concern that we already show ourselves. So what am I trying to say here? Point number one is that basically this is not a new problem, but it is a widespread problem all around us. We breathe it, we are surrounded by it, And guess what? It's inside of us. It's an issue that we struggle with, all of us. So the prevalence of self-worship is obviously widespread. Secondly, the second point I want us to consider this morning is, what are the symptoms of self-worship? Some of you may still be saying, I don't buy this necessarily. I don't think that's a problem I have. Well, listen to some of the things I've uh, reflected on as some of the symptoms of self-worship absorbed living you see if if you want to know what a symptom of self-worship looks like it means we have a commitment to self-fulfillment and many people operate in their daily lives with these questions that they constantly raise within their own thinking with their own process of what they're doing and what they're going to choose to say what they're going to choose to involve themselves in how they're going to spend their money and basically the questions are what really works best for me Or, what in this situation, what is in it for me? Or, what can I get out of this situation? And so Paul warned the church members of the church there in Philippi. He saw the problem within hearts of so many people, even within the church, that Paul said, listen, there's a tendency that we all need to guard against to be self-absorbed. So Paul says, listen, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests. The problem is, we do that 
rather often, it seems to me. I know I do. Because the danger in self-worship is that far too much value gets placed on our own gratification. Because we're longing for something that we can't seem to find anywhere else, we keep longing to find it in gratifying in our natural desires. And so we use people as instruments to help us get what we desire, to get what we want to achieve, to help us with our wants, to help us with our dreams. And so oftentimes our own sense of importance becomes far too magnified. We become impatient with other people. You think that affects people in the way they drive? People in the way they deal with other people around them? Oftentimes our focus, if it's on self-fulfillment, it leads us to demand from other people more than we expect of ourselves. And oftentimes our commitment to self will lead us to a diminishing level of service. I've been thinking a lot about that, how in a generation or two, we talk about the greatest generation, the World War II generation, how so many of them just said, you know, I'm going to devote myself to serving the country, to serving where there are needs. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to do this, that. They just willingly gave themselves to that. That ethic has changed so dramatically in a wide sphere of our culture today. We oftentimes lessen the demands that we allow to be put upon us. Look, don't shackle me in. Don't make life so restrictive for me. I want to just do what I want to do. Get out of my way. Let me live my life. And oftentimes, of course, that kind of mindset into self-fulfillment starts invading and polluting the institution of marriage, and you've got yourself real disaster coming on. How sad and how tragic that one of the symptoms of self-worship is the fragmentation of family bonds. Families' ties become ripped when people are committed to themselves and to have their own devotion to self-worship. It actually is, acts like a, a corrosive element in the institution of marriage. I, I, I was thinking about a car I had years ago. One of the first cars I bought was my, a car that belonged to our family. and So I bought it when I was in college from my dad. And, and uh, it was a great car, ran great. And the problem was it started rusting. And I can remember uh, by the time I had gotten to seminary, uh, we didn't have much money. to couldn't throw much money into it. And it was just rusting all over, particularly up in the wheel well in the front near the engine department, uh, engine area. And when the factory had put together, you know, the, the chassis, uh, the body of the car on the top here, right, and they bring it up here with a, on the, uh, on the uh, assembly line, they got the engine and the seats and the frame of the car, and they put the two together, they were meant to stay together, right? Well, by the time the rust had done its number on that car, you could literally take the hood and just take it off. I mean, it's no longer attached. It, it just was, I, I couldn't drive the car anymore. Uh, that's what self-worship does to marriage. It, it removes and separates things that were meant to be joined together. With increasing frequency, 
we see the fallout take place when there is the kind of narcissistic thinking. When self-absorbed people perceive that their needs are not being met as they demand that they ought to be met, there is what? Increased conflict. The desires of their hearts bring all sorts of arguing and fighting and all sorts of fallout that happens between them. And then there's an increased determination to keep pursuing self-fulfillment at all costs. It doesn't matter what's going to happen. This is so important to me, I must have it. So you begin to see all sorts of rationalization of all sorts of reasons that would therefore justify the fact that this marriage is not working any longer. We're not meant for each other. I don't deserve this. I don't want to be miserable all my life. And so it goes on and on, and those things become the factors that pull things asunder. Again, I'm not speaking to anyone here specifically. I'm just talking in general terms. Is that not true in general in relationships of marriage? Sadly, it is. And self-worship weakens, obviously, the bonds of commitment in order to escape. So if I don't like what's going on in the real world with the real person that I'm trying to make this relationship work, then I escape off into self-fulfillment in pornography. Or I escape into the world of workaholism and my job becomes that which finds all my needs being met and gratifying, gratification. Or I throw myself into an adulterous affair somewhere and I'm looking for somebody else who can thrill me and chill me. And more and more people, of course, are not even willing to make a commitment into marriage. We heard the statistics not too long ago. Oh, millennials, they're not into divorce. They're really into Sticking with their marriage, that's true on some level, but the statistics were deceptive because the reason that we're less and less divorces is because less and less people are getting married and they're waiting until later and later in life and they're just not getting married. More and more people are choosing to just live together out of wedlock so they can enjoy the benefits of marriage without what? Without the obligation, without the demands, without the commitment. And in this way, they are free at that point in their mind to walk away anytime they want when things don't work the way they like. When you no longer scratch me the way I itch, sorry, I'm moving on to somewhere else. How sad. How tragic. How revealing of a heart that's filled with oneself, more so than love for God and others as we love ourselves. More than that, if you think about this angle of what self-worship looks like, it can lead ultimately then to hearts that become embittered, right? A person who suffers an offense from the past, because I think I deserve better and because I demand that people should not treat me that way because, listen, I'm, I am a person who ought to have everything going right in my life, therefore I will etch that wrong in stone and you will never get past that offense. You can be certain that when two people are characterized, whether it's in the church or whether it's in life and marriage or in the workplace, when people are characterized by contentiousness, the idol of self-worship has taken root in the soil of their hearts. James 4. Now clearly it's not just something for older people, it's like 
at the age of 21, then obviously you begin to have problems with self-worship. I would just say it's something that characterizes a young person's thought life and their aspirations and desires, as well as even children. We find a pervasive sense of entitlement, it seems to me, that also now is showing itself. It accompanies those who worship themselves. We refuse to accept responsibility for not getting what we think we deserve. I was talking to my son-in-law the other day who is a professor in a university in southern Illinois, and uh, he had some friends over celebrating our granddaughter's birthday, and so I asked the question to these fellow friends who are also professors at the same university, in the same department. I said, give me some insights as to what it's like being a professor in today's world. Wow, did I get an earful. All sorts of frustration over having to deal with attitudes that say, well, listen, why are you not giving me a hundred on this quiz when I was trying my best and I only got a six? As if trying your best means I should get a hundred on everything. It's entitlement mentality. And they're dealing with it all the time. I may have thought that, but I didn't say it to my prof, you know? <laughs> Some of them not only say it, they get their parents involved in requesting on their behalf. Oh, the joys of teaching nowadays. Anyway, if you think about it, if you want to go to the extreme in this kind of mindset of self-worship, in the extreme now, it leads to awful Situations like domestic violence, date rape, or road rage, where someone says, I will not tolerate this if it doesn't go my way. I came across a quote also from someone that has dealt with people who are into self-worship and a narcissistic type of thinking, and they talked about the fact that another characteristic that accompanies this struggle of the heart is a person who twists and distorts the truth and uses lies all the time. He described the fact that narcissists are the ultimate utilitarians. They say whatever it takes to accomplish their purposes. Truth is just a tool to use. If a falsehood will accomplish the purpose more effectively or even easier, it can be substituted without any qualms. Unquote. Isn't that true? Are you a person here today who says, well, I must admit I struggle with telling the truth. I struggle with not getting what I expect or demand. Are you a person who can admit that you are inclined to demand your rights rather often, and that's why there's so much contention, contentiousness going on in your life? Do we view life through the lens of what you think you deserve? And do you assume that you're entitled to so many things that you're not getting right now? Is self-worship pulling your family apart? Is self-worship undermining your fellowship with other believers. It's so important that we begin at the very beginning, and that is we need to admit, 
if the first step to diminishing the influence of self-worship is obviously to admit that we all have hearts that are pulled into this direction. We all have hearts that are pulled in the me-centered, the self-centered gravitational pull of our own sinful hearts. And what we all need, of course, is a Savior's grace, a Savior's love, a Savior's forgiveness. And that brings me to my third point this morning as we look at the cure for self-worship. The worship of self, without question, requires outside help if we're to get a cure. You will never be able to relinquish the influence of self-worship in your own heart merely by trying harder to somehow extricate it or to somehow diminish its influence and control over you. You can't do it by just thinking positive thoughts. You can't do it by saying, well, I'm just going to do one act of kindness today. It's not going to work. It's a deep-seated pull in our nature. And the gospel of God is the only cure to this, I call it a lethal enlargement of our proud hearts. We've elevated ourselves beyond what we properly should. And it's the gospel that begins at this very important point. The gospel begins with the, state, with the understanding that there is one, one and only one creator God who is holy, he is set apart, he is absolutely unique, he is also absolutely pure, morally speaking, and he is the only one whose greatness and whose glory are such that when we as sinners approach him, we are filled with a sense of trembling and holy fear. The gospel confronts us with that and begins to help us see that our elevated view of self is going to now bring us face to face with the one who is truly elevated and who is worthy of being elevated. And therefore we're reminded that he is the only one worthy to be worshipped and adored by all of his creation because it all belongs to him. When Peter, the apostle Peter, became aware that Jesus was the all-powerful, true holy son of god on that occasion it was when they're out fishing and jesus tells them look stop fishing the way you're doing it do it this way do it on this side of the boat and they did it and immediately caught hundreds and hundreds of fish what was peter's response when he realized this is truly the son of god this is god in human form sitting right beside me he responded in utter self-abasement falling down at the feet of Jesus, and we read in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. It's not merely coincidental, it seems to me, that the Magi bowed down. They bent their knees as a way of acknowledging we are lowering, lowering ourselves before one who is great in our presence. True worship, my friends, involves the honest recognition of Jesus' worth and our unworthiness. 
See, the gospel of Jesus brings those who are high and lifted up in their own minds and attitudes about themselves, it brings them low. It humbles them. It calls them to lay aside all thoughts and feelings of self-assuredness and and pride and self-righteousness. And the Gospel calls us in James 4 with these reminders. God is opposed to the proud. Who's a proud person? person who's involved in self-worship. God's opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. In other words, think about what you would do in your life that's all about yourself, and stop doing that. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Mourn and weep. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. That's where the Gospel begins. And here is the good news of the Gospel. Everyone who humbles himself, everyone who humbles herself, who admits that our rebellious sin, our our misdirected self-worship is wrong, and we repent of that, then God says, I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to elevate you. I'm going to bring you from the point of despair and unworthiness, and I'm going to give you what you'll never find anywhere else, and that is a love, an approval, that you long for, you'll never find on your own. Because God in His immeasurable love sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to liberate our hearts, to set us free from the bondage of this sin that we have of self-worship. And God in His love again sends Christ who humbles Himself, laying aside His glory, His rightful position of elevated glory, He lives a life of perfect obedience. He dies in our place on the cross, suffers the punishment for our sins that we deserve. He he receives that on the cross. And God raises Him from the dead. And He proves in such resurrection that the death that Christ died on that cross in paying for our sins was adequate. It was sufficient. It was complete to atone for the sins of all who will repent and believe. And so the gospel calls all of us to repent. Repenting of all forms of seeking to save ourselves by our own self-efforts. Because let's be honest, self-worshippers think, hey, I can handle this. I can save myself. I can improve myself. I can try harder. I can do a lot more things in my life and become more worthy of God. You, you still have a very elevated view of yourself that's unrealistic. The Bible says we are saved by grace through faith. Even faith is not produced by our own efforts. It is a gift from God. The Bible says it's not of works because there is nobody, not a single person who can boast in heaven, who can boast because they've entered the kingdom of God Because look what I did. Look what I chose to do. Look what I finally figured out. There's no boasting. It's all God and His grace. The fact is, all of us are wired to worship. And our hearts are easily ensnared, it seems to me, with this delusion of assuming that the best way to overcome all of our feelings of emptiness, all of the longings in our hearts for inadequacy, is to prioritize our lives around self. And so this pursuit of all these things 
leads us to the fact that we'll never achieve the purpose for which we're made. See, the problem is that we were made by and we were made for someone who is greater than we are. And we are not at the center of the universe. We're made for God. We're made for God's glory. We are made in order to make much of God. And how sad when our lives become consumed with only ourselves. Imagine, if you will, for a second, how shocked we would have been as parents if our son, when he was in high school, was playing the French horn, which we had purchased for him with our hard-earned dollars, and they're not cheap, even the ones that are beat up that you buy secondhand in the music store. Imagine if he had taken his French horn and he had used it as a means of collecting water like a watering can because it does have this nice open bell, you know, that, that just, you can easily catch water in that and it doesn't spill. And so he catches all the water in this French horn and he uses that to water the lily garden we had around our house. Imagine how shocked and outraged we would be. Because what's the purpose of this French horn? It's designed to resonate sound waves out of that bell. Not to collect water into it. It's designed to give out the sound of that mellow horn. See, the point is, we were designed to know, to love, to enjoy, to magnify, to live for God. That's what we've been designed to do. And so that reminds me then that true salvation then begins when we repent. Repenting and continues with an ongoing repentance of our own hearts, longing to live our lives devoted to our own happiness, devoted to our own fulfillment, devoted to our own success, devoted to our own satisfaction and significance. The absence of any kind of holy fear of God. And to have a disregard for the holiness of God, it seems to me, is one of the real sticking points that leads to a preoccupation with self. And so what I would long and hope and pray for is that God would work into our hearts a sense of wonder, amazement, love, of humbly casting ourselves before God in a sense of just being blown away by His awesomeness. And that's why I've included in your notes the helpful definition, a comprehensive definition of worship by William Temple. Would you follow along as I read this? Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. Notice the word submission. It's a yielding. It's a surrendering of ourselves to God and all that we are. It is the quickening of the conscience by God's holiness. It is the nourishment of the mind with His truth. It is the purifying of imagination by His beauty. The opening of the heart to His love. The surrender of our will to His purpose. And all of this gathered up in adoration. The most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. And therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, for that self-worship, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. 
What's he saying? He's saying if we come into a living relationship of respect and reverence and love and devotion to God through Christ, then you find yourself motivated to live for Him. The New Testament talks about when you have a job, you don't just have a job and you don't just look at your time and just say, I'm going to do this and I'm out of here and I don't care what happens. I, the Lord Christ is my Master. I'm doing everything I do for Him. When you own anything, it's not yours. You're just a manager of it. Boy, am I aware of that. All the stuff we go through that we've hoarded and collected and begin to say, wow, this is not all mine. It's really, I'm just holding it for a period of time and using it. It belongs to Him. It is every day becoming aware that all of life is all about Him. It'll set you free, my friend, when you understand that that is the reason you exist, is to live so that you are enjoying it, all of life, because it's all about Him. It'll set you free from self-worship. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you, as the only one worthy of worship, have given us a Savior, because Lord, we desperately need (laughs) saving from ourselves, saving from our elevated view of ourselves and our own hearts bent toward wanting to be God, to want to have life operating the way we demand it ought to operate. And so I pray today, Father, that by your Holy Spirit you would bring upon every person here today a reverent sense of awe and trembling fear before you, realizing that you know all about us and that you are very much holding us accountable for all of our waywardness and that you as the God who knows and who owns everything Lord you know how outrageous it is and how often our hearts get caught up in this kind of glorification of self so father I pray that the gospel would be applied to our hearts in a powerful way today help us Lord to see not only our evidence of needing to be rescued and liberated from this sin but lord show us the greatness of our savior he himself laid aside all things he laid aside all the things that he deserved to hold on to and he came and humbled himself and kept humbling himself and kept humbling himself even to die in shame on a cross in order to save us and rescue us to then elevate us and lift us up and call us his own children lord i pray that you would draw into a relationship with you today, any who are here today who have never said, Lord Jesus, save me. Give me a new heart. Forgive me for my sin and my self-worship. And give me a, a new beginning and a relationship with you through Christ. Lord, would you do that even today? And for those of us, Lord, who know you and who still struggle with this sin, would you show us a fresh reminder of Christ and his humility and his selflessness and his desire to show us an amazing love 
may it turn into a love, Lord, for you that evidences our own willingness to submit all we are to you. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.